0: presented this morning is Janice. Good morning Janice. Good morning. And so on today's program we'll be talking about a cybersecurity law that follows a spate of hacking attacks targeting local institutions. Only days after Tech Hub Cyberport confirmed a leak which exposed 400 gigabytes of personal data, the Consumer Council also announced that its computer servers were hacked in a ransomware attack, compromising the data of around 8,000 people, including subscribers of its Choice magazine. Crit- critics have long called on the public and private sectors to strengthen their cyber defenses with some suggesting the enactment of laws that would give more liability to entities found to have inadequate defenses so how far ahead are the hackers can we still catch up and are more regulations the answer after 940 we Talk about the government's drive to promote reading among the city's young people. And then just before 10 a.m., we'll be getting an update on the Asian Games. So let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, email us at backchat.rthk.hk, at or call us on 233-88-266 So joining us on the line this morning is Michael Gaisley. He's a founder and managing director of Network Box Corporation. Good morning, Mr. Gaisley. Morning. Good morning. Mr. Gaisley?
1: Yes, good morning. Good
0: morning. morning. And then also on the line is Dominic Lai, he's a partner in ONC Lawyers, which is a law firm that deals with um, cyber technology. Good morning, Mr. Lai.
2: Good morning. morning. Sorry, it should be Y-W-A-I.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Y. Okay. Thank you. Okay. um, Mr. Gaisley, uh, over to you first. Do we need a cybersecurity law? Law, and if so, what are the criteria it should have?
1: Yeah, I think sadly we are getting to the point where we do need a cybersecurity law, and never been keen on on sort of, you know, using laws to enforce technology. Um, but but I think we're in a we're in a ridiculous situation because I've been doing this for decades, and you know, meeting with various. Organizations you know almost every day, um, the vast majority of them just don 't take this seriously and it 's pretty frustrating
0: when you when you say they don 't take it seriously, what would you like to see them doing that they 're not doing
1: Well, every time you you get an organization hacked or infected or you know the data's leaked. You get a, a, a bunch of senior people on the media sort of saying, oh, this is a highly sophisticated attack and it was really complicated and just anyone would have been hacked. It wasn't really our fault is what they're trying to say. But in reality, almost every organization leaves themselves wide open and, and it's mind numbing.
0: What well, what should they be doing then to protect themselves?
1: Well, I, I mean, locking down their firewall, not just accepting traffic in and out, you know, data in and out. Uh, without thoroughly having it checked, I mean, technologically, I don't want to bore your listeners, you know, with, with lots of t- sort of you know technical discussion. But th- there's just so many ways to get it done properly, and almost nobody does.
0: Yeah, uh, Mr. Yao, you you deal with um, cyber technology litigation. What are some of the cases that you've seen?
2: Um, well, we, we have seen a lot of cases um, like the recent ones of hacking and then ransomware and also, of course, a lot of them are also will lead to, because of the data leakage, the impersonating uh, of people and also maybe they will be receiving scam messages, uh, asking them to click onto links and then there might be further breaches of um, uh, data, data loss. And, and we have been trying to help clients in terms of uh, investigations. They, they might need to do investigations. Uh, if they're in a, a regulated industry, the regulator might ask them questions, and including maybe the privacy commissioner. So there have been a lot of cases that we have been trying to help the clients in terms of dealing with the hacks and also trying to help them to uh, recover the losses.
3: All right, Mr. White. And just now, uh, Mr. Gaisley, he says uh, we need a cyber security law. Um, can you, can you tell us a bit about uh, the current laws we can, we have to rely on right now? When, before we have a cybersecurity law, what uh, laws are there to to protect us from uh, uh, c- uh, cyber security breaches, for example?
2: Well, currently, we don't have one single uh, law on cybersecurity, but we do have different laws. For example, in the crimes ordinance, we do have a law of dishonest and criminal use of computer that have been used to go against uh, hackers. Uh, so hackers, they might use uh, computers uh, on the criminal intent and dishonest intent. So that's one area. Another area, of course, is under the personal data privacy ordinance. If the matter deals concerns personal data, then the Privacy Commission under that ordinance will have power to go after any persons that may have misused um, personal data in terms of like uh, the doxing. Uh, so uh, those, those are the two main uh, uh, law. But uh, of course I totally agree with Michael uh, that we should have a standalone cybersecurity law because a lot of other countries have that already uh, for decades.
1: I, I think that the biggest problem is the existing laws are against the hacker, right? But we're sitting in Hong Kong, the hackers may be in Russia, right? Or Brazil, or India, or somewhere completely different that's beyond the jurisdiction. So I think that the new law needs to be against the organization where they, like a vacuum cleaner, kind of suck up everyone's personal data, and then they don't look after it. And ironically, I think law firms are some of the worst.
0: Okay. So so recently we had a case with the Consumer Council um and the the data breach involved people who subscribed to the magazine. Are you saying that Consumer Council should be held accountable for the breach?
1: Well, I think somebody should review what they did in terms of cybersecurity. I mean, did they lock down everything that should have been locked down? Were they scanning everything that should have been scanned? Were they updated properly? Were they complying? I, I mean, you know, it it's 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 not good enough, and I think that's one of the problems with, with laws, actually, is that it's extremely vague. It will say something like, oh, you need to, you know, update your systems. Well, at Network Box, we're updating systems about once every three to eight seconds, but updating a system could mean once a year, right? So mm. it needs to be more specific, but I also understand that in terms of law, that, that is difficult, but unless somebody... Properly defines what needs to be done, and they put in something vague. It will mean that it's almost impossible to prosecute.
0: What is it that Hong Kong is not doing that uh, other places might be doing to protect data?
1: Well, I, I I think Hong Kong, there's just too much of a oh we'll do it. You know, we've got some project on, or we're busy. You know, we'll do it next month, next year, next century. You know, they they just don't do it, and I. I find it really worrying because, I mean, I'm you know I'm a citizen of Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong. I, I live in Hong Kong. My family lives in Hong Kong, and we're in a situation where we're continuously forced to put our data more and more online, but it's not protected. And a lot of this data, you can change your password, perhaps. But it's not so easy to change your physical address or your children's names or where they go to school and your medical records and banking records. I mean, there's just so much data now that is being forced from us and put on the Internet and then not protected. And then the people that don't protect it, they don't get in
2: trouble. Well, I think um, a lot of the other uh, countries have already got very good um, data protection laws, including mainland China, when they have enacted the personal information protection law, that uh, is very much like the European Union GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations, that gives a lot of protection on data subjects, including uh, notification requirements, uh, e- even private actions against um, those who have caused loss due to the data leakage. So I, I think Hong Kong is trying to catch up because we do have some, I think, law in the pipeline uh, including amending the Personal Data Privacy Ordinance to make it mandatory for notification if there's a data breach. And also, I think uh, there's a, in the pipeline a cybersecurity law for Hong Kong. The Law Reform Commission has already issued a consultation paper last year uh, seeking comments on the, introducing five new cyber crime law in Hong Kong that also has extraterritorial application. So if those are in place, then I think uh, we might be in a better position uh, to protect uh, our cyber security.
0: Right. Um, So you mentioned at the moment Hong Kong has no data breach um, notification requirement, as in the case of Cyberport, which the people whose data was was, uh, lost or or exposed, um, they didn't know for weeks. Mr Gaisley, what what are the implications for the people whose data, the the victims, what are the implications when it takes so long to notify them?
1: Well, they're, they're obviously not prepared. And as soon as the data hits the dark web and it's out there, or even if it doesn't and it's just with one particular hacking group, then there's an increased chance that these people are going to get, you know, ripped off or they're going to get you know, sent links, as was just said, or they they, they may have their, you know, banking Uh, you know their bank accounts their credit cards and so on attacked Uh, it's just they're at increased risk but you know as I was saying before I just find it amazing that you know I talk with uh, medical groups and law you know lawyers accountants the very people that hold confidential data and yet the attitude just is amazing I mean they really don't care
0: attitude is one thing I do you feel that they're knowledgeable enough to know what they should be doing
1: well i mean they they can get professionals like ourselves in and solve the problem today but they don't and i'm not just saying that because oh you know we're doing this as a business and therefore that's what we're promoting any more than a doctor is saying well you should do these things to stay healthy you know it's just absurd to me that so many organizations just take all our confidential data they seem, you know, they they have a right. They insist that they take this data, and then they don't protect it. But there's there's no sort of comeback from us as the public once this data is stolen and exposed by hackers.
0: What what about the uh, duration when an organisation should be allowed to hold uh, people's data? Is is that an issue? Well,
1: that that does help, but you know, once the data is on the computers and and you know the hacking group stolen it, you can make different rules on how long the data can be
2: around, but once it's on the dark web, it's around
1: forever.
0: Okay, and then... Yes. uh,
2: Sorry.
0: Yes, go ahead, Mr. Wai.
2: Can can I just come back on the notification part? Because even though there's no mandatory uh, requirement under law at the moment, but in terms of regulated industry, for example, like banks, uh, internet brokers, or, or insurance companies, their regulators have set out guidelines that they do need to notify the regulators if there's a data breach within a certain period of time so so kind of indirectly that there are a requirement in regulated industry that they do need to give notification if there's a data breach
0: okay Uh, mr gaisley there there are certain things that individuals uh, can be doing so for example using encrypted messages or or if you you're really desperate you can try to put things into blockchains instead Do you feel that uh, Hong Kong in general is doing enough that on an individual level to protect themselves?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, obviously not, Um, but I would say that at the moment, the biggest problem are organizations, Um, you know, government needs to wake up and professional bodies controlling accounting firms and law firms and so on need to wake up, because many of these actually within their professional body have got rules that are supposed to be enforced, but they're not. And, and as I repeat, lawyers are amongst the very worst.
0: Is that, is that a fact, Mr. Way? Lawyers are the very worst. Do you feel that's well, true?
2: Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> it depends on the situation. I mean, the, even if you look at the recent incidents, it's a matter of just maybe a, a, a slip that they might not have patched up the, the um, software quick enough. So this is something that is not might be an attitude problem. It just might be something that in terms of uh, the awareness or of the IT people, actually sometimes maybe the IT people, they have missed out the patching. And also it's in terms of, of course, the budget, uh, of course it's always the thing that you need to balance uh, how much a unit spent, a unit spend uh, a lot of money in terms of, uh, covering, uh, you can of course always not be able to do it 100%. So, so how do you balance that? That's so, a those good are point. things that probably will affect. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's let, a let's good put point. this in dollars and cents cost. then. Mm. To protect uh, a
1: small organization, you're talking a thousand to two thousand Hong Kong dollars a month. And to protect a sort of medium sized, you know, maybe 100, 100 people, 150 people. To, to do it properly is somewhere between say three and six thousand Hong Kong dollars a month and that covers about 99% of Hong Kong so that's what people are not willing to spend in order to have your data ripped off and put on the dark web it just makes no sense to me
0: and what happens um, to to companies that do spend on, on the protection do they get a firewall What what is it
1: well um, if you want to get technical you get a firewall which basically separates off your office network, say, from the internet, so what's inside versus what's outside. And then you have intrusion detection, which is like having CCTV cameras and logbooks to check who's coming in and out. You have intrusion prevention, which is like having a security guard who grabs the bad guy. You have to sort of push update this so that the security guard is always aware of who is a bad guy. Um, You have anti-malware, anti spam, web content filtering I mean the list goes on I mean, I don't want to bore you to death but that's kind of also the point where you can get an expert team come in such as ours and, and we can come in and actually do everything for you, you don't have to do it I mean I have physical security at our offices and I pay a physical security company to go and do that, I don't try and you know make uniforms and train up people and get the right licenses and insurance and all this i pay experts to do it same as if i had a legal problem i'd pay a lawyer to do it or if i'm not well i go to a doctor um you need to take cybersecurity seriously but it's not that expensive it's it's not an insolvable problem, it's just most people don't try and solve it.
3: Right, Mr. Gaysley, I mean you mentioned the importance of awareness uh, earlier. Um, are there more companies or organizations getting in touch with uh, cybersecurity firms like yours to, to ensure their system is uh, secure?
1: Well, you, you get a, a very notable uptick uh, after you know, something like Cyberport or the Consumer Council, and by the way the Consumer Council now, the number's upgraded from 8,000 to 25,000, so um, it, it seems it's worse than it was first thought. Um, but yeah, every time there's, there's news like this, there's an uptick, and then it doesn't take many days and weeks before everyone forgets again.
0: Um, you, you know, organizations such as the monetary authorities, they have issued circulars on, on cybersecurity risks. the SFC has. They have the guidelines for reducing and mitigating hacking risk um, associated with internet trading. You. But you're saying that's, that's not enough. You, you mentioned that they're not spending the money to do that security. But there's well, also the, the, a question of convenience, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's a pain to go to a different computer to, to, to search yeah. the Internet.
1: No, no. I, I think these organizations well, – I mean, you say the word circular, and I think that sort of says it all. These organizations are operating at the speed of red tape. The hackers are operating at the speed of the Internet. Guess who wins?
0: Okay. Um, now, uh, Mr. My, Mr. Gacy did mention that, of course, the hackers are beyond Hong Kong's jurisdiction. From uh, the law point of view, legal point of view, what are the difficulties in uh, taking on these cases?
2: Well, if they are not in Hong Kong, then Hong Kong might not even have the jurisdiction to investigate. And you might need to have foreign jurisdictions, uh, law enforcement to help. Um, so... The the ghetto ground is usually that you would pass a law that has extraterritorial applicability, which a lot of these similar type of laws in other jurisdictions have that element. So it's not difficult to uh, have that. And as I mentioned, I think the proposed cyber crime law uh, that's in the pipeline that would have that element. So uh, for the time being, of course, that might be an issue even for Hong Kong law enforcement to try to pick up the matter because uh, it, depending on the law, they might not even have jurisdiction. So that, that's why they might rely on things like fraud, where because we do have a legislation saying that if a, a, an element of the fraud happens in Hong Kong, that Hong Kong will still have jurisdiction and Hong Kong police can still investigate the matter.
3: Right. I just want to go back to uh, Mr. Gaisley. I mean, uh, when we look at uh, the Cyberport case and the Consumer Council case, I mean...
1: Well, but also, to be fair to those two organisations, there are many more government departments Mm. in the last few months that have been hacked. It's just they didn't end up in the news.
3: Right. I was about to ask uh, how much risk do you think uh, other statutory organisations or government departments uh, in Hong Kong are facing when it comes to uh, the risk of being hacked?
1: The the, the risk is just huge um, because... I mean, we we have technology to look at the risk level and whether an organization is properly secured. We can sort of scan their firewalls and so on. The vast, vast, vast majority, almost all are not secure.
0: You know, Mr. Gaisley, in in the United States, for example, if you if you get hold of people's social security number or or their driver's license details, um, then then you can do all kinds of things um, with it. You know, just impersonate a, uh, some somebody.
1: Yes, identity theft.
0: Exactly. How does that work in Hong Kong?
1: Exactly the same. If you grab somebody's ID card and passport, and you've got their you know, their home address and all their, I mean, you think about it, the very things that are stolen regularly by hackers are the very things that a bank uses to identify that this is really you and they should authorize this credit card to be, you know, uh, put online and so on. I mean, it, 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 it's just it's so ridiculous. Um, they know that this data is exactly what's being stolen and then they rely on the same data to identify you. So surprise, surprise you get identity theft.
0: Mr. White. do you agree with Mr. Gaisley that the owners should really be on the organisations who, whose data is breached? That they well, they should they be do, the ones...
2: Do, yeah, definitely, I think they do have um, um, the, the the duty because even with the current existing laws, any data user would have primary obligation to comply with the law, including to take measures not to let the um, data uh, have the risk of being leaked or hacked. So, uh, yes, I, I do think they do have um, primary uh, liability and also duty to protect the data that they, they're holding, that they have collected from uh, data subjects. But uh, going on, uh, just one point on the impersonating kind of fact or identity facts, I mean, Uh, If you look at social media these days, you don't really need to hack or get the data from people. You just impersonate them by using their names and putting on uh, social media uh, uh, and then pretend to be that person.
3: Right, right, Mr. Y. I I just want to go back to uh, uh, the, the case uh, involving uh, the Consumer Council. Uh, so far, we, we know, well, according to the Consumer Council, approximately 8,000 individuals uh, were suspected to have been uh, compromised. And uh, earlier, Mr. Gaisley said it's uh, 25,000 or it's been upgraded to 25,000. And uh, Mr. Y, um, when, when it uh, comes to these uh, individuals that, that have been affected under the current law, can, can, can any of them uh, get any compensation from this?
2: Uh, well, they, they might be able to take out some uh, private actions against either if they're able to identify who is the hacker or the um, um, uh, maybe even the um, uh, company that holds the um, data, but um, there's no clear uh, law that allows them to take out private actions for the time being. So uh, I would think that uh, if we are going to amend the law in terms of cyber security. Uh, We should follow what other jurisdictions, for example, like GDPR and also in the mainland China, they do have provisions for victims to go after um, those um, companies that have caused or or responsible for the data loss. And also another issue in Hong Kong is that we don't have class actions. So that might be something that the government should also consider because usually these kind of cases would involve a lot of victims and some might not have money to go after these uh, uh, organisations in private action. So we might need to actually, or we should uh, introduce a class action regime to help these victims.
3: And then is this uh, included in the uh, um, cybersecurity security uh, laws that you, you said were in the pipeline for Hong Kong? Uh,
2: in terms of private actions and class action, I'm not sure that's included. But I, I would certainly recommend the administration to consider adding that. Than in
0: okay um well we 're coming up to uh nine thirty in a minute um, so let 's have a look at today 's weather so in today 's weather forecast, we have many fine um, Apart from a few isolated showers, it's very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees in urban areas and a couple of degrees high in the new territories. There'll be moderate east to north easterly winds, uh, occasionally fresh offshore at first. And the outlook would be isolated thunderstorms tomorrow and a few showers and sunny intervals in the following couple of days. Right now the temperature outside is 30 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 74 percent. And here's Hayley Ape with the news. Police are investigating suspected arson after four people were injured in a fire at a subdivided flat in North Point this morning. The man who called police was plucked from a balcony at Yin Wong House on King's Road by firefighters while another man and two women were rescued unconscious from inside the flat. The head of an NGO has spoken out against harsh sentences for young offenders after an 18-year-old was jailed for 11 years in a drugs case. Sky, CEO, the executive director of Kelly's support group, said evidence showed that jailing people under the age of 21 would harm their prospects. And a judge in New York has ruled that Donald Trump committed financial fraud when he was building his property empire. Arthur Engeron said the former president repeatedly exaggerated his wealth, sometimes by billions of dollars. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. well we're back here on back chat um and this morning, we are talking to Mr. Michael Gaisley, who is a founder and managing director of Network Box Corporation, and Mr. Dominic Y, uh, who is uh, with ONC Lawyers, a law firm that deals with cyber technology. Um, Mr. Gaisley, will making companies um, issue personal information collections statements? Will that help?
1: Well, I, I actually just repeat, I think the first thing that we need to do is actually have the right attitude in organizations where they take it that they should secure themselves. I mean, I'm not kidding. I, I had a meeting with a a major barrister, you know, a a, a temple, um, and I was talking with, with, you know, a senior barrister, and they had ultimately no interest in securing their clients' data. And he just jokingly said, as we walked to the lift, "Oh, well, if if we get hacked, we'll sue them." And, and, and you know, I I don't know whether he was serious or joking, but I mean, it's just such a ridiculous comment, and it just sums up so many law firms, and you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. And I think that attitude needs to change, where maybe um, you know, with a cybersecurity law. If a law firm was going to be taken, you know, really fined heavily and, and forced to take it seriously, then maybe they would. And I, I think that it's better than trying to put the onus on the users because, you know, if, if you're in a court case and you've got to give a lot of personal information, you're not really going to argue against it. You're just going to do what your lawyer says. But if your lawyer is then putting it on the Internet for anyone to steal, that's just absurd.
0: Uh, Mr. Woy, what do you think?
2: Um, Um, Well, that might be one comment from one uh, barrister that Michael mentioned, but I'm not sure whether that represents the whole um, industry. But uh, in in terms of, of course, professional code, in terms of for law firms, they do have an obligation to protect uh, the uh, data of the clients and also the matters. And, um, of course, I think... um, in terms of uh, what I mentioned earlier that uh, if there is a provision that can help the victims uh, that that should we should try to have that in in the law books so that uh, all these uh, victims in mass would be able to at least get some uh, compensation
0: but well, what are what are the um, difficulties in some of these litigations right now
2: well you 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 might not be able to actually find out or or, uh, who who might be responsible, that's one thing. A lot of these, you're not able to put your finger on who who is responsible. And and they might be overseas, as Michael mentioned. So it's unknown and overseas, and then the legal cost and time involved could be quite a lot if you go after the culprit. So the the next better step is to try to hold the company or organisation that has uh, not done their part, uh, in terms of uh, relating to a data breach to be responsible and that's easier because that party would be in hong kong and then uh, depending on the law of course once you show that they are responsible uh, then uh, it, it would be easier to to hold them uh, liable
0: uh, In in your experience when you handle these cases Uh, Give me a ballpark of how many percent are actually uh, successful in in terms of uh, protecting, you know, getting some form of compensation for the victims, Mr. White.
2: Well, it depends on the kind of cases. uh, If you're talking about going after the hackers, probably the percentage is very low because sometimes you can't even find it, and then you rely on law enforcement to be able to actually find the uh, party. And sometimes if it is overseas then the um, the victim might not want to spend more money in terms of chasing after those losses. So but, it could it's just very very low percentage I would say. Yeah.
0: Okay. Mr. Gaisley, what would your advice be for people whose data has been exposed? I mean I had an email from the consumer council the other day about about this uh data breach. What should I be doing now?
1: Well you have to be yeah, you know, eternally vigilant on your own data, especially things that involve money, like credit cards. But as I say, we we keep looking at the problem after the problems happened rather than forcing organizations to actually avoid the problem in the first place. And what's frustrating for me is there's just this myth that, oh, you know there's these sophisticated hacks and so on in in reality, I mean, let's put it in physical terms. It's a bit like, you know, if if you have put your money in the bank, your physical money, your physical goods, you know, if, if they've got armed guards and they've got bulletproof glass and they've got all kinds of safes and so on, if they did get robbed, um, they've kind of really done their best. But imagine the same scenario where you put your, your worldly goods into this bank and they've just left the door open and, and you know, your gold bar is sitting on the table, people forgot to put it in the safe or there isn't even a safe in the first place. Is that acceptable? And I think obviously not. And I think that's what's happening in cyber right now, is so many organizations are wide open and they just do not care.
3: Right, and Mr. Gaisley, I know, I mean, earlier we, re- we already talked about how we we're gonna have our own uh, cybersecurity laws uh, uh, in a few years time. And uh, um, what can a government do right now to make sure that uh, their, their, uh, their information, their data their, is safe?
1: Well, the the government itself could do us all a favor by making themselves safe, which they're not. And then, you know, other organizations can can follow suit. Now, I, I don't want to say every organization is bad. I mean, we deal with a lot of organizations which put a lot of effort in. But that actually, you know, makes me feel how unfair it is that some, you know, some organizations take it very seriously. Most really don't care. But there's no way to sort of differentiate between them if if you're an end consumer i mean it, I, I think maybe the government should introduce you know some kind of logo or, or whatever where there's a, a, a genuine standard that has been met so that we we can know who to frequent and who, who to give our business to but in some cases as i say with certain government departments or particularly large banks and so on there's no choice you you have to deal with them
0: yeah, you know, some of us use, for example, you know, password um, website, you know, websites that, that manage your password. There's one master password that, that you have to get into. Yeah, and all
1: of those sites have been hacked themselves, pretty much. So that that's also depressing.
0: Okay. Uh, so give me an example. You, you said just now that there are some firms that are very good in Hong Kong that, that deals with cybersecurity, protect their own data. Give me an example of what they do.
1: Well, um, if you want to talk law firms, I mean, one of our clients is Haldanes, They've been the sort of top criminal law firm in Hong Kong for many years. And, you know, they take it seriously. They they work with us and they secure themselves. And it's just such a rarity amongst lawyers.
0: And so so comparing this law firm and, and another law firm, what what is it that I can access in the badly I, I, managed I've, I've law
1: had, firm? I've had law firms that have been hacked. They've come to us and we've discussed how to secure them. And, you know, despite the fact they've been hacked, despite the fact their their client's data has, has been stolen and they know it's been stolen because they've been threatened and blackmailed and so on, they've ultimately done nothing. And it's because they're not willing to spend, you know, a few thousand dollars a month to secure it. And I think these are people that charge you a few thousand dollars an hour, you know, for, for one lawyer, a few thousand an hour, as opposed to a few thousand a month to protect their whole law firm. And they're still not willing to do it. And until they're punished, I think they this will carry on.
0: Mr. Y, is that your, your experience in the legal sector that law firms are notorious in that in that sense?
2: I can't speak for all other law firms, but it might be the case. Of course there are big law firms, small law firms. Uh bigger ones might be doing better in terms of having the budget. Uh small law firms they might uh have other concerns. But I think uh, no, no system is 100 uh, percent, you know, uh, safe. B- because even for the biggest tech companies in the world, they got they could got hacked with the the strongest uh, um, protection. So it's a matter of a lot of things. Like Michael said, uh, in terms of of course spending money is one thing. Is in terms of how um, people's awareness, uh, training, and also including the IT staff, have they been also been diligent in patching up? Uh, the the uh, software. Uh, at the end of the day, of course, these things might happen because some of our program software have vulnerabilities that expose us to these kind of hacks. And and if we are not quick enough to patch up, then of course that these things might be taken advantage of. So there are a lot of things that involve not just the money spent. No,
1: right. I, I mean patching is, for example. Um, things like the panama papers where a huge amount of data was exposed
0: okay
1: that was a case where they weren't patched for about six months okay. in singapore they lost the entire country's medical records right. every they right. were not patched for over a year so you know that's absolutely true i mean patching is critical but we're helping patch. i mean we help right. organizations automatically patch at the gateway every few seconds i mean okay. they're, they're they're permanently up to date but okay well
0: yeah. Yes, okay. Well, thank, thank you very much uh, for being with us this morning. Michael Gaisley of uh, Network Box Corporation and also Dominic Y from ONC Partners. The
1: government has launched HKE Toll. With a vehicle tag, there is no need to stop to pay tunnel tolls. Tolls will be deducted from your account automatically. Starting from 5am on August 27th, HKE Toll is implemented at the Eastern Harbour Crossing. When using toll tunnels that don't have HKE Toll yet, please continue to use the existing payment methods. Visit hketoll.gov.hk for more. Drive smart with HKETOLL. Carers have been taking dedicated care of family members in need round the clock. I'm so exhausted. Can someone help? People around carers could lend a hand to support and ease their burden. Families, neighbours and our society can build a carer-friendly community. Let's help carers take a break and show our support. Carers in need may call the designated hotline for carer support, subvented by the Social Welfare Department, 182-183. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 882 and have your say.
0: It's coming up now to 9.45 and we're going to be talking about Hong Kong Reading for All Day. Uh, And joining us to talk about that is James Chong. He's the founder and CEO of Rolling Books. Good morning, Mr. Chong. Morning. Morning. Uh, So tell us about this program, this Reading for All Day.
4: I think I just like got, got heard from the news about this program because like um uh, the government is like telling us like in the April the twenty third next year or maybe in the coming years as well, and they were put in a lot of resources to promote reading as a whole city, and um, it involves like many. Um, events done by the public libraries as well as like they are funding Great Hong Kong um, to engage the industry to promote more reading related materials. I think that's a good sign in a way.
0: Yeah, so this is a Hong Kong reading for all day and it's going to be every year on 23rd of April as as a chief executive said. Why do you think this kind of program is necessary and how does it benefit young
4: people? I think looking back at the tradition, like um, that we have World Reading Day on that day already. And uh, we've been celebrating uh, maybe for, um, already for many schools level because like we, uh, little social enterprise and um, schools will engage us mm-hmm. to do reading related activities on performance on stage um, on that day or in that whole week um, in the past. And um, I think they are like different um- activities and events of different scales are already in place on that day um but maybe on not to not at this scale perhaps the, the government is saying that they will be putting lot more, lots more resource so for us it's it's just a little step maybe, and but we we haven't um been able to see what exactly they wish to do. And um, we're looking forward to that. But going back to your question about like, how is it, why is it important? I think we we are the people in the boxing industry. We always believe in reading and um, it, it's it's a positive thing. But I think the, the, the issue about us is like, we always say the other um, digital screens are taking over all the reading and the, the young people are spending less time in reading these days. And I think there is something that we, can keep going and we can keep doing to make reading more accessible to children.
3: Right, well, what do you think of the reading culture right now in Hong Kong?
4: Well, it's hard to say. Uh, On on one hand, like um, uh, all the digital screen or maybe when we we used to say that reading is is for your knowledge and for your chance to to get away from poverty. I mean, that kind of discourse has been going on forever. And, um, but we still think there are many other um are the nature of reading which benefits um, the society as a whole it's about community connection we we, we talk about reading you talk about books and it, you can also um find out how to build your resilience by like reading novels and you learn from the characters and uh, especially during the COVID, um it's very important that we we spend time by ourselves right and so by reading it's one of the easiest way to to get well-being and you know enjoy solitude by yourself and um i think we we have been missing those um it would be nice if we can try to find a new way to to engage more people to go back to reading and um I think that's the challenge that we are facing.
0: Yeah, I, I know that the Hong Kong Public Library, the one in uh, over on Hong Kong side, the, the big main library has reading corners, for example, for, for for children and and sometimes, you know, we we go to bookstores and they have a special stand for uh young adult mm. books. What are some of the ways that you use to encourage children to take up reading?
4: I think when we um restrict the reading we in libraries and bookshop that that means that we might not be reaching many people who won't go there in the first place. So what we were doing is like, we try to engage a wider public um, to let reading be seen in a way. And not only do we do that in bookshops and libraries, and um, for example, we have mobile units, we, we have like we retired we um, taxi, to, uh, which is which is like not, operational, but we can tow the taxi into different district to do the community centers, to do the public housing estate and do the the schools and distribute books. And in that way we can let reading be seen in public. So the children will see, oh, that's a book car there. And they will feel excited to go and grab some books to read. And we sometimes have storytelling in those open area. And so that uh, you can expect more people to go to those um, pop-up events to engage themselves with reading. I think that's the thing that we we have been doing.
3: Right, and for this uh, reading for all day, um, according to the information we have so far, the chief executive, uh, John Lee, he said uh, there will be uh, sponsored uh, promotional events during that day. Do you suggest, I mean, from what you said, that event, I mean, do you, do you suggest that uh, one of the promotional events could be for for, uh, for uh, maybe like a truck or something to go to different uh, public housing estates to, to carry out uh, what you were talking about, uh, reading to be seen kind of uh, events?
4: I'm, I I realize that um, if the government is doing um, similar events, uh, they they will have their own system already uh, of reaching out through their own channels, but I think they can also engage the private sector maybe with with social enterprise sector to 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 try to do a more creative um, initiative re- re- reading. You know, Hong Kong has a very rich creative industry nature I, and i definitely think if they try to do more crossover with other industry to promote reading that will definitely help a lot and also one minor note um i think um usually when we do promotion reading we 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 promote like to the general public we always say that but it's also very important when we talk about like reading we want to make reading more accessible to a for some underserved communities. For example, we have been helping the ethnic minority community to do like reading uh, to learn Chinese and we have been we published a picture book with audio description to help the um, visually impaired children to 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 be able to read a picture book through audio description. So I, I would believe that for this reading for all day, it would be very nice if the government will take initiative to look at how to make reading more accessible to a wider range of underserved community. For example, the migrant domestic workers, we can encourage them to read through this um, Reading for All Day as well. I think that's something that we expect, we hope that will happen.
0: Another thing that the government is doing is taking the initiative to sponsor the publishing industry through something called Create Hong Kong. How useful is that?
4: I think um, Create Create Hong Kong has been um, funding um, um, different publishing award, publishing award, and also they have initiative to um, to let the first writer to publish their own books. It's been going well, and um, and I, I do I do look forward if they put more resource there. But um, we would really love to to have the publishing industry um, to to look at the maybe the less mainstream. Um, Industry people, like um, for example, there are many independent bookshop and many independent publisher these days. They publish a wide range of like materials, and I think that's also very important when we talk about reading. It's not only all the bestsellers which will reach to the wider community, but it also helps if we have a diversity of like um, agendas and and discussions amount like different publishers, like independent bookshops and publishers are doing uh, a nice job in that. I hope that um, Hong Kong will look at that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've all noticed is the decreasing number of major bookshops in Hong Kong, right, And, and obviously that's going to make access to especially new books more and more difficult. What do you think um, can be done about that?
4: I think um, the bookshop in industry is facing a lot more challenge besides like, um, the economic factor right now. But what I think we can do is like um we have we try to we can try to promote reading from a more holistic approach like it's it's not only about through libraries and and about a uh, uh, bookstore. it can be done like through a collaboration with private sector and for us we as social enterprise we we work with different like corporate and uh, they will ask us to teach them the colleagues how to do storytelling and uh, they will come to do volunteering for us and um, so that they will be able to do storytelling with the children from the ethnic minority background so uh, it's inevitable that we can see that that the bookshop um, is shrinking and but at the same time when we start to do more initiative in to promote reading i would definitely hope that the bookshop industry will come back and um, even though the chain bookshop shop are, are, are closing down but um, it's we have a vibrant nature of independent bookshops in Hong Kong it would be nice if the government can like have initiative um, to help the independent bookshops um, to do maybe book release events um, because like book independent bookshops are, are in many districts as well and uh, there are some in outlying islands as well and um, it would be nice if they are they have been sponsored to, they can be both sponsored to provide some reading activities to connect the wider community. I think that's something that Creative Hong Kong can look at. Uh,
0: one way, easy way for children to access books is obviously online through eBooks.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Do you see a difference between that and reading? (laughs) I mean, I personally love to hold a physical book, but do you feel that there's a difference?
4: I think uh, about like three, four years ago, we had lots of discussions about like ebook compared to physical book. And after the COVID, I think it's kind of obvious, like um, we all enjoy uh, reading book from its physical form. And um, I believe that uh, we, we, we have been doing so many things on online, on digital screens already. So when we have the opportunity to do um, reading uh, from a physical book, I think people will enjoy that more often. So I think we, we're going back now and uh, it tends to, there's less argument about like eBooks these days because like we, we, we have a real opportunity to look at something non-digital that would be great.
3: So, so, you probably prefer a Hong Kong reading physical books for all day, then?
4: Yes, <laughs> I, I, would not exclude like online reading um, sometimes. But um, we all, we all have like when we have got physical presence to connect with each other, and that will be easier to, for us to engage together in reading. No matter whether you discuss um, in person or, or you have got, like, we have got performance to engage the children in in reading. And I think that's the physical presence and connection is also very important. Okay,
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, James Chong of Rolling Books on Reading for All Day. And uh, in a minute, we will be talking about the Asian King. And so joining us now um, in our studio is Jamie Clark, who's going to be telling us about the 19th Asian Games, which is in Hangzhou until the 8th of October. Jamie, what have you got for us?
5: Uh, Yeah, I should, I mean, I should start by mentioning Siobhan Jorge. um,
0: Second gold.
3: Yeah, she broke another Asian record um, (laughs)
5: on the way to gold in the 100 meter freestyle. But to be honest, we could talk about Siobhan Jorge every day. She keeps winning. So let's change track and uh, start with the women's rugby team because the women's rugby sevens team secured a bronze medal yesterday they were against uh, thailand side who beat them 17-5 in the quarterfinals in 2018 Um, but yesterday chong kai yan scored a first half try for hong kong that's her seventh of the competition and it was converted by jessica ho which proved to be the difference that kick because hong kong won 7-5 and for the men's side, it started nervy. They came from behind to beat Japan in the morning in their semi-final game. The final was slightly easier, but only slightly. Keidu Lee and Liam Doherty scored tries either side of half-time to put Hong Kong 14-0 up. Uh, Korean hit back, Korea hit back in the second half with a Chang-Yon-Hung try. And the ending mate was made worse for Hong Kong. Russell Webb was sent to the Sinbin but fortunately, the Hong Kong defence stood firm and they won gold. And after the game, Hong Kong's Yu Kam Shing announced his retirement from the mat- after the match. Uh, he was in tears and you could see how oh. much the, won- the win meant to them. So that was really nice. Really good really good day for Hong Kong rugby.
0: Yeah. What about sailing? We're going to, into the final day for sailing. What should we be looking out for?
5: Yeah, there are six medals races in the, on the concluding day of the sailing competition. Hong Kong could be in contention for four. We have Stephanie Norton. She sailed for Hong Kong at the 2020 Olympics. She's placed second going into the medals race in the women's dinghy. Cheng Chin Yin is in third going into the men's windsurfing, and Mark Wan Ching in the women's surfing uh, windsurfing is second, and Nicholas Bezy is just behind the top t- tiers in uh, the men's dinghy. This is a young team. Uh, head coach Harris Solis. Didn't want to put much expectation on his team before, before this competition, hoping that it would be a building block for the sailors moving forward. But yeah, they're in good, good positions heading into the final day.
0: Yeah, and of course, our Olympic champ Edgar Chung is back in the fencing arena today. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, so Edgar Chung is back, as is Vivian Kong. They contributed two of those four medals um, on opening day on Sunday. Edgar Chung won gold in the individual foil. He's back with the men's foil team. That's um, Chung, Ryan Choi, Nicholas Choi and Young Chi Ka. They won uh, silver in 2018. That's the full full team of four, the same as 2018. So we've got a good chance for them. And Vivian Kong won bronze in the women's individual epee on Sunday. She'll be competing in the women's team epee today with uh, Chan Wai Ling, Chu Ka Mong, and Kaylin Se. Uh Three of those four were com- competed in 2018 in the same discipline. They won bronze. So, yeah, there's a good chance again for them. Uh, today.
0: I understand e-sport is part of the Asian Games.
5: Yes so this is the first time that um, e-sports has been part of a multi-sport event Um, and China yesterday won the first gold medal. Um, They beat Malaysia 2-0 in the final of the smartphone game Arena of Valor. Um, Yeah it's making its debut and a lot of people think this is a big step towards it being one day inducted into Olympic Games as well so that's very exciting. There's 4,500 capacity stadium at the eSports Centre in Hangzhou. It's been packed every day. Uh, tickets go, this is the only event where tickets are handed out through a lottery system. People are signing up for multiple tickets, multiple times, hoping to get in. And yeah, you see crowds outside waiting at the end. If, if they can't get in, they're just trying to see the athletes get in.
0: And how can, how does Hong Kong do in that
5: eSports? So china, China's china got the first medals. There, there, there are two finals today, uh, two medals rounds today, and there are tie gamers in the bronze and gold medal matches so not much for hong kong so far but we do have uh, athletes in them um, so yes it's one to watch there's a league of legends quarterfinal league of legends is popular in hong kong and we're reaching the end of street fighter 5 competition um, but yes one thing i wanted to mention before before i end is if anyone can watch coleman wong's tennis quarterfinal from yesterday he saved five match points in the final set to come back to beat, to beat his um, Chinese opponent. Uh, that was incredible. He's in a, he, he's reached a semi-final now, which is very exciting.
0: Okay, well, th- thank you very much, Jamie. And if you want to follow the latest results throughout the day on the Asian Games, you can go on our website or download the RTHK News app. And thank you very much today for uh, Janice, who's been co-hosting with me, and also uh, our producer, Raphael Vlatch. Um, And we are coming up now to 10 o'clock. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening.
4: THK, the new